0: Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Kennealy for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, February 3rd, 2023. Today as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW senior writer joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Simon & Schuster has another legal battle with Donald Trump on its hands, Andrew. The author this time is Bob Woodward, and Trump's target is an audiobook, The Trump Tapes, featuring recordings of Woodward's calls with the
1: former president. Yeah, stop me if you've heard this one before, (laughs) right? Donald Trump is suing Simon & Schuster uh, and one of its authors. You know, actually, I think this one probably is a little different because Trump isn't trying to block publication of Woodward's book, Simon & Schuster's book, in this case, uh, an audiobook. he simply wants to get paid. The former president this week filed a nearly $50 million lawsuit alleging that Bob Woodward and his publisher, Simon & Schuster, actually breached the former president's copyright interests by publishing the Trump tapes, the historical record, which is an audiobook based on interviews that were recorded for Woodward's 2021 book with Simon & Schuster called Rage. Now, in the complaint, Trump lawyers say that the audio tapes that Woodward made were protected material subject to various limitations on use and distribution as a matter of copyright, license, contract, and basic principles of the publishing industry and core values of fairness and consent. That lifted directly from the complaint. Uh, The suit seeks a declaratory judgment. Acknowledging Trump's, quote, full copyright interest uh, in the recordings that Woodward made and the works derived from the recordings. Um, And based on some really murky math that's involving the two million copies of Woodward's bestselling book, Fear, he's asking for compensatory punitive damages and disgorgement. Of uh, that number, which is just under $50 million. Plus, of course, he wants costs and legal fees. Uh, in a joint statement, Woodward and his publisher, Simon Schuster, rejected Trump's claims, calling the lawsuit without merit and saying that they are confident that the facts and the law are in their favor. But, you know, it's kind of a perfect story for Groundhog Day, right? It's a, here we go again, right? We talked last week about how. In 2020, Trump used the Department of Justice to try to block the former National Security Advisor John Bolton in his memoir with Simon & Schuster, The Room Where It Happened. Uh, A month later in 2020, Trump himself unsuccessfully sued Simon & Schuster and his own niece, Mary Trump to block publication of her memoir, Too Much and Never Enough. And of course, last week, we talked about it on the podcast last week, Trump threatened to sue Simon & Schuster and former New York criminal prosecutor Mark Pomerantz over Pomerantz's forthcoming publication of The People versus Donald Trump, in an inside account. Suffice it to say, Donald Trump has a campaign to run, and he's you know back on the trail, of course, for the Republican nomination in 2024. And this really is, if nothing else, keeping that bombastic Trump brand in the headlines.
0: What's your take then on the Trump legal claims against Woodward and SNS? This suit is different, you note, because it asks for remedies over
1: an audio book, which isn't something we've seen before. Yeah, it's not the usual stuff from Trump, you know, which usually he's seeking to block publication. Basically he's saying Woodward and his publisher are ripping him off and that he deserves to be paid for his part in giving an interview to Bob Woodward. But like Trump's previous suits, you know, I agree with Woodward and Simon and Schuster that this one has no chance of success. And the complaint itself is, you know, a mashup of specious claims and anger and you know for example it suggests that Trump and Woodward's vague banter about what the interviews would be used for which is you know a book and not for a Washington Post story that somehow that constitutes some kind of verbal license that precludes the release of the tapes and he goes on to cite common industry practice uh where you know most usually when you publish an audio of an interview like this you get a release from the the person you're talking to Um, He even like, you know, sort of mischaracterizes a compendium of best practice from the copyright office when it comes to how to treat interviews and in terms of registering for copyright. But I think this case just fails on some pretty obvious points, which is the first being that Woodward was not necessarily interviewing Donald Trump, the man he was interviewing the president of the United States. So in this capacity, it is highly unlikely that Trump has any copyright claim at all. This is direct to the public domain. So yeah, for many reasons, I don't think this one survives a motion to dismiss. But again, it's a tension for the former president. It's bombastic. It's another way for him to paint the media as dishonest. So it checks a lot of boxes in Trump worlds.
0: Penguin Random House U.S. CEO Madeline McIntosh announced this week that she will leave the company.
1: Yeah, big news, though. Not necessarily surprising in the wake of Penguin Random House's failed bid to acquire Simon & Schuster and, of course, the previous departure of Marcus Dole, the CEO. Uh, in a memo to staff this week, McIntosh wrote that she's stepping down from her position as CEO of PRH USA. And we'll work with Niara Malavia, who is Penguin Random House's interim, though I understand that interim is not going to be there for long and he will be permanent. Uh, Malavia is currently the interim global CEO of Penguin Random House. And that, you know, McIntosh and Malavia say that together they're going to work on the best plan for the US organization going forward. And I think that's an important and careful choice of words there. It's not just that McIntosh is going to find a new person to fill her old role. But this really is sort of a chance, a reorganization. So they're going to be working on how the company, now that it has been unsuccessful in acquiring Simon & Schuster, is going to reorganize its operation with you know, obviously some new people and some some new chairs. Again, you know, the news comes you know a few weeks after the departure to Gina Centrello. Uh, I don't think that's gotten nearly enough attention in publishing worlds. The longtime publisher uh, and president of Random House Publishing Group, Centrello, is sort of a towering figure. Uh, in the publishing world, and in of course the Penguin Random House empire, she's a very shrewd publisher and a great editor. And in many ways, people will tell you that she's been the driver of much of the company's success in terms of what she's worked on. And you know, I'm told that she, the Centrello, is just ready to take a step back uh, and had been ready for some time, but that she kind of stuck around to see Prince Harry's best-selling memoir uh, Spare to the finish line after it encountered some delays. So. While big changes are in the works at Penguin Random House, my sources tell me that Centrello's departure isn't closely linked to the fallout from the failed merger or any kind of reorganization there. In her memo, Madeline McIntosh says that one of the reasons for her decision to leave is that she doesn't believe that it's a good thing for CEOs to stay in their seats forever. Uh, it's kind of a refreshing perspective, I have to say. Uh, and you know, she says that too that you know, fresh perspectives can be incredibly healthy and helpful for organizations. Uh, And she also says that she has no immediate plans that she was just itching to make another leap. Now we'll be keeping an eye on Penguin Random House, of course, but I think there are clearly big changes coming for Penguin Random House after the failed merger, obviously, but I want to think more broadly here too. And I think this year in 2023, we're going to be talking a lot, not just about Penguin Random House, but about the big five in general post-merger. And post-pandemic, and really this is all going to get a little head-spinning, I think, right? Penguin Random House is resetting after its merger plans failed. Simon & Schuster is in the most precarious place of all, perhaps, because it's on the market in search of a new owner. HarperCollins, as we've discussed, is dealing with a strike from its workers, and it just announced a deeply painful 5% cut to its workforce. Uh, McMillan has a new CEO in place after the departure of longtime leader John Sargent uh, and Don Weisberg. And Hachette's corporate ownership is involved in some drama of their own in France. And of course, all of this stuff is happening amid a tough post-pandemic economy, and that's globally, and a book market that appears to be softening after two years of strong growth during the pandemic. And frankly, I think the biggest change is going to be trying to navigate, trying to get back to some sense of normalcy in the workplace and in the industry. So changes at Penguin Random House, but I think it's worth keeping an eye on all of the big five publishers in the industry in general. I have a feeling 2023 is going to be a year of big changes.
0: And that news of layoffs at HarperCollins during a contentious strike has raised eyebrows.
1: Yeah, very disturbing news. Uh, you know, HarperCollins uh, CEO Brian Murray announced in an internal memo this week that the company is going to be reducing its workforce across North America by 5% before the end of the fiscal year, which ends in June for HarperCollins. The memo cited unprecedented supply chain and inflationary pressures, which we've talked about on this show, all of which kind of you know date back and stem from what's gone on with the pandemic, and also declining sales over the last few quarters, which we've also talked a little bit about on this show. Uh, and the layoffs come, as HarperCollins last week confirmed, that it had actually agreed to work with a mutually agreed upon independent mediator to take over labor negotiations with its union. The the union has been on strike for more than 60 days now, uh, and it's been fairly stalled. The union, of course, has more than 200 employees. Uh, They've been on strike since November 10th. And a memo from HarperCollins, VP of Human Resources, said the company was hopeful that this mediator can help find solutions that have eluded them so far. So we will certainly hope that's true. 210 UAW President Olga Brutistova said the mediator step is an important opportunity to resolve differences between the union and the striking workers, uh, though the strike continues. Uh, and there are still some very major sticking points in the way, and there were a couple of big rallies this week. So very hard news for the employees at HarperCollins, um, some who are losing their jobs under this, these these uh, job cuts and others who are on strike and, you know, once again, another sign that across the industry, 2023 is off to a fairly ominous and uncertain start. But let's hope there will be good news coming soon in terms of ending this strike and, and getting the union back to work.
0: Last weekend, Andrew, you traveled to New Orleans for the American Library Association's first ever X conference.
1: What did you make of it? It went very well, I have to say, though whether it went well enough, I think remains a looming question, and I'll just get the obvious point out of the way right up top. It was a small show. Uh, I think overall registrations were around twenty six hundred but that included vendors uh, and virtual attendees, so I'm going to ballpark actual registered librarian attendees at you know under fifteen hundred which if I'm being honest is, is pretty small and probably too small to sustain an in-person meeting over the long term. You know, you, that's just not going to get it done. That said, I don't think we should read as much into the numbers this year as into the actual value and energy of the show. And I say that because Well, look where we are right now, right? We're coming off a pandemic. The economy is really lagging and hurt. Uh, And this show is sort of a whole new thing that's really yet to show the library community what it is and what value it has to offer and vendors, too, for that matter. So this first year in person coming off the pandemic with this new format, it was always going to be challenging with this economy, especially. But they got it done. And my personal experience was that the librarians who were there Saw some great speakers, had great meetings, participated in some excellent learning opportunities in the education program. They were all thrilled to be together and seeing each other. There was a ton of energy throughout the meeting. You know, and all of it was really valuable, especially now as librarians are grappling with book bans and other challenges and as they pursue these diversity, equity and inclusion policies. And much like publishers, you know, as they think about what this new post-pandemic normal is going to look like, I think it's important for people to be together together in person, face-to-face again, and to be able to talk these things out. And I think this show, uh, even if it was sort of as suspected, a little small in terms of numbers, reinforced how important all of that stuff is to actually be together in person again, especially. So you can read a little bit more about my take on the show on the PW site. But I thought the show, Libler Next, was a success on the content. Now let's see what happens next year. And in a bit of good news, I can report that What we've heard on the floor this year is that ALA ALA is really expecting a massive return to the annual conference in Chicago uh, this summer, in June. I'm told there's going to be a full show floor. In fact, I think the show floor is close to sold out already. That There's a ton of demand that librarians are excited to go. Uh, So we'll see. Uh, I think ALA is feeling really, really positive about its annual meeting. As we discussed back in December, I've circled that date of my calendar and had it circled for some time as an important marker for our return to you know what some sense of normalcy is going to look like. So I found it to be really good news that at LibLearnX, which was a really high energy show, that the early buzz there is that the summer shows, this this ALA show in particular, is going to be a strong one. So let's hope that this summer is a turning point toward better days for all of us.
0: Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, publishing... Startup. No, that's not an oxymoron. More than 1,300 new ventures have appeared in the industry over the past 15 years, according to a new report in Publishers Weekly from analyst Thad McElroy. He tells me that big five publishing executives often rely on startups, given their own mixed records for in house innovation.
1: The senior executives at the largest publishers tend to come up through editorial. Another bunch of them tend to come up through sales and marketing. They never come up through tech. They never come up through the IT channel or the department of innovation, such as those exist. And the result is, I think for the larger publishers, they don't necessarily intuitively pick up on the value of some of the startups. So there's that on the one hand. And they, one very smart executive said to me, why do we have to buy the company to use the technology? We can license the technology. We can become a customer. At the same time, you know, we're we're large firms and we should be building this stuff internally. And so they have the money to do some very intelligent internal investment that they don't have to share with anyone. And so they can develop a competitive advantage that way.
0: The Book of Publishing Startups, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.